Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 51, Enoch and the Book of Watchers. There are a few names which follow us through the history of Western esotericism popping up everywhere, and sometimes in the most unexpected places. One we have already met, Pythagoras. The name of Pythagoras is cited by esoteric authors from soon after his own day, Plato being the classical example here, right up to the modern era. Sometimes Pythagoras is the teacher of initiatory wisdom, sometimes he's the father of secret societies, sometimes he's the master of hidden mathematical or geometric lore, sometimes he's all of these things, but he's always around in some form or another. Another such figure, whom we've only briefly touched on in the podcast so far, is Hermes Trismegistus. Half man, half god, half Egyptian, half Greek, Hermes also shows up in a bewildering number of contexts and connections right through the history of Western esotericism. And we look forward to coming to grips with the thrice great one in upcoming episodes of the podcast. But in this episode, it is our pleasure to introduce another such perennial figure of esoteric wisdom, Enoch. Lovers of Western esotericism may well have heard of the Enochian magic of John Dee, spiritual philosopher and scientist to the Elizabethan court. They may be familiar with the Enochian alphabets, mysterious sigils that appear in many a cryptic tome of magical and philosophical wisdom. But who was this Enoch character, and how did he get a reputation such that he has his own adjective, Enochian, which, like Pythagorean or Hermetic, carries with it a savor of hidden lore and magical power. That's the question for this and the following episode, and to answer it, we need to go all the way back to the apocalyptic genre in Second Temple Judaism, and to our first major fully-fledged apocalyptic text, the Book of Enoch. Or rather, as we shall see, our first major body of assorted texts, a selection from a whole bigger body of Second Temple writings, collectively known as Enochic writings, which no one is quite sure how to relate one to the other, nor can anyone agree whether there was a sort of Enochic Judaism responsible for their production, nor do we have the original versions of any of them, except maybe some fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So far, so good. In this episode, we shall try to do two things. Firstly, we have a brief look at the textual story of the book known as One Enoch, not, I must emphasize, in a way which specialist scholars of this text will find particularly illuminating. The point is just to cover the basics and do so without going out on any limbs, hopefully, so that our listeners can grasp the kind of few certain points in the shifting landscape of interrelated texts. And we'll also want to say a few words about the Enochic literature more generally. Now, secondly, we want to begin to explore this literature, starting with the first part of one Enoch, known as the Book of Watchers. This is worth spending some time on, because if someone mentions fallen angels who had sex with human women, giving birth to a race of giants who then eat everyone, all right-thinking people want to hear the details. Here on the Schwepp, we like to get into the details. In the next episode... We shall have a quick look at the rest of one Enoch, because it's a very big and complex text, and there are four more main sections. 
and we will adumbrate a little bit the role the Enochic tradition has played in the story of esoteric Judaism, esoteric Christianity, Gnosticism, and Western esotericism more generally, beginning to bridge the gap between Enochic texts and Enochian magic. The Enochic tradition is one of the most important undercurrents of the Christian and Jewish faiths, taken in different directions by each, to be sure, and it's a cornerstone of the apocalyptic tradition. It is also, in some ways, the esoteric scripture par excellence. So let's get to it. First of all, who was this Enoch guy, anyway? Enoch first appears in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis. His name appears in a long genealogical list of patriarchal figures. He's the great-grandfather of Noah. Everyone's heard of Noah, but not so many people have heard of Enoch. Enoch lives 365 years, which is not bad, but he's special for another reason. Genesis chapter 24 tells us, quote, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, as was mentioned in episode 50, Enoch is probably one of the figures of the Old Testament who, along with Elijah, never dies. He's instead taken up by God in some special way. He has a special fate. This may or not be the meaning of the Genesis text, but it's certainly how it was read by the authors of the later Enoch literature. Enoch didn't die. He was translated to a higher state. In later tradition, this could be taken to mean anything from taken on a visionary ascent journey, where the secrets of creation were revealed to him, as in the Book of Watchers, which we shall be exploring in a moment, to transformed into the angel Metatron, as in the Book 3 Enoch, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's get back to Genesis. That's Enoch's first appearance. Not exactly a starring role, but he does appear in a very important text, the book Bereshit, or Genesis, part of the five books of Moses, which were the closest thing to an agreed-upon Jewish canon in the Second Temple period. So Enoch has serious credentials. And there are a few other points from Genesis to mention here, the relevance of which will become clear in due course. The first is the wonderful and cryptic text of Genesis 6, which follows right after the genealogical passage which mentions Enoch. So let's go from Genesis 6-1, skipping a few bits. Quote, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Okay, so some characters called the sons of God, and these are generally taken to be angels, certainly in the later tradition they're taken to be angels, though what exactly an angel was to the writers of this bit of Genesis is not entirely clear, we can't discount the idea that they might literally have been sons of God, as in God got someone pregnant and had sons, but at any rate, they're beings from God's retinue in some way. These sons of God got it on with human ladies, and the giants mentioned thereafter are seen in the later tradition as the offspring of this unusual marriage. So angels mate with human women and giants are born. The text then continues, 
And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So, now we have the flood narrative, which should be familiar to most of our listeners. God destroys almost everyone, and Noah makes a fresh start. Now, how did the wickedness of man get so great in the earth? Later readers, or at least the Enochic authors, thought that it was the giants. The product of the unnatural coupling of the sons of God with the human women had messed up the divine plan, and thus the world needed purging by flood. There's a lot unexplained in the Genesis account, like why God had to destroy kangaroos and presumably also destroy the dinosaurs in order to purge the evil of mankind. But never mind, this isn't a question that the Genesis author asks. So that's our background in Genesis. Now we move to our text, One Enoch, which gives a version of the same story but fills in the gaps for us. Now, the textual history of this work, One Enoch, is so complicated and full of holes that it might be best to start with One Enoch as we know it and move backwards. But before we do that, let's take the broadest possible view, because there are three books of Enoch, known as One, Two, and Three Enoch. These are designations made by scholars in the 20th century for the most part. It was only in the 20th century that these texts were sort of rediscovered and put on the table for dissection. One Enoch is the main one we'll be discussing in this episode, but our listeners deserve a quick appetizer of the other two books of Enoch because they're amazing. Two Enoch, also known as Slavonic Enoch, is a very mysterious text indeed. Scholars can't even agree if it's Jewish or a Christian work. It survives in two main versions in Old Church Slavonic, which is the liturgical language of various Eastern Orthodox churches like the Russian Orthodox and the Bulgarian. It might have been originally written in Hebrew, or it might have been Greek. Some datings are as early as the first century CE, while J.T. Millick, one of the foremost scholars of all things Enochic, thinks it was written by a Christian monk in the 9th or 10th century CE. Either way, whether ancient and Jewish or medieval and Christian, the book presents some unorthodox ideas which don't sit well with any mainstream version of either faith. Enoch travels through the seven heavens and is transformed into some kind of angelic being. He then returns to earth and instructs people about what God has shown him, including stuff about the end of days and salvation. So, so far, so apocalyptic. But with no mention of Jesus... Or anything like that. So there's nothing overtly Christian going on here. The book ends with a story of a virgin birth. But again, this is not the virgin birth of Jesus. It's Melchizedek, Enoch's great-great-grandson. With no Moses or Mosaic law, we can't place this within the kind of Judaism that would become Rabbinic Judaism. And with no Jesus, but with an alternate virgin birth, it's hard to see how it could have been Christian. To Enoch is an enigma, and we love those. However, To Enoch hasn't actually played a major role in Western esotericism until very recent times when scholars sort of dredged it up from the Slavonic world and subjected it to public view. 
so we will reluctantly bid it adieu for now, noting only that it serves as a reminder that what we consider orthodox in a given religious tradition is usually just the tip of the iceberg. There is also the third Enochic book, the Hebrew text known as Three Enoch. This one we will be discussing, but not in this episode. We want to save it for our discussion of the Hechelot and Merkava traditions and the rise of practical visionary journeying in Second Temple Judaism. Because Three Enoch deals with the celestial architecture of the heavenly palaces, the Hechelot, which is the terrain explored in these Jewish vision quests. And it's clearly related to these Hechelot texts, although the relationship is not a straightforward one. But don't worry, we will have some good heavenly palaces in just a moment when we turn to the text of One Enoch. So let's do that. One Enoch is a text which has played a fundamental role in Western esotericism. Now, as everyone knows, the apocalyptic text known as One Enoch is not canonical in mainstream Judaism, nor in any form of Christianity, with the exception of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, a very ancient Christian confession established all the way back in late antiquity, so one of the most ancient continuing Christian lineages. The Ethiopian Church recognizes one Enoch as a fully canonical work. In fact, they have not just one, but many canonical apocalypses, which means, among other things, that anyone thinking about becoming Christian should seriously consider the Ethiopian Orthodox option, since the Ethiopians have all the best visionary narratives. Why settle for the Apocalypse of John when you can have the Apocalypse of Enoch and a bunch of others? So what is one Enoch? This is a long text of 108 chapters, fully extant only in the Ethiopic language, which is known to aficionados as Ge'ez. This is the liturgical language of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. One Enoch only survives as a whole in Ge'ez, but we have fragments of earlier bits of it in other languages, Aramaic and Greek being the keys here. However, the work as it comes down to us in Ge'ez is clearly assembled from a number of earlier independent works. And scholars pretty much agree that these were all either originally in Aramaic, which is the most commonly used language among Near Eastern Jews in the Second Temple period, or a combination of Aramaic maybe with a bit of Hebrew thrown in, because as we've seen, Hebrew made something of a comeback in the Maccabean period, and some texts like the Book of Daniel have short Hebrew sections inserted amidst the main Aramaic text. So, these original Enochic texts were circulating among Jews in the Second Temple period, the oldest sections of one Enoch, widely believed to be the Book of Watchers and the Astronomical Book, we'll get to those different books in a minute, may be as old as the beginning of the 2nd century BCE or somewhat earlier. So this is the height of the Hellenistic period, basically. Some scholars want to put chapters 1 to 36 of the Book of Watchers even earlier, in the 3rd century, while the latest bits hail from probably the 1st century CE, so well into the Roman imperial period, and the period of the Jesus movement and a lot of other interesting developments in Judaism. Before we get into the books and their contents, let's pause here for a minute. What we seem to be looking at is a body of texts, and the one thing they have in common is that they're all somehow Enochic, and we'll return to what that might mean later. So let's reconstruct how the text was put together. We start 
with the Ge'ez Book of Enoch, which we have today. When we look at it, we can tell it's been stitched together from many bits of evidence, not least of which are the seams actually visible within the text itself, because sometimes you can just tell that two different texts have been wanged together in a fairly unsophisticated way. Now, the Ethiopic text probably was translated in late antiquity, maybe in the 5th or 6th century CE, but we think it was already assembled into the Book of One Enoch that we know and love before this translation process took place. Most likely, the Ge'ez version was translated from a Greek version, though it's not impossible that some Ethiopian knew a bit of Aramaic, but since we know there was a Greek version of One Enoch, even though we don't have all of it, the safest bet is that this Greek intermediary was the one that the Ethiopians used. So, now we're looking at a Greek text. Was it in Greek that one Enoch was first assembled into one Enoch from various Aramaic books that were in circulation? Or was the Greek a translation of an already redacted compilation of texts in Aramaic? Or were the different books first translated into Greek and then assembled from a bunch of Greek texts? No one knows the answer to these questions. We can say with confidence that one Enoch existed in Greek, but it may have already existed in Aramaic as one Enoch or proto-one Enoch. Is that all clear? If not, don't worry. The point is, for our purposes, that one Enoch already existed as the text we know and love, more or less, before it entered the Ge'ez language. It also was circulating in Greek, for sure, and various Christians outside of Ethiopia accessed it in Greek. So Greek will have been the way it entered into Christianity, which, as we'll see next episode, it did in rather spectacular fashion. Now, it may have been circulating as a single work in Aramaic, we're not sure. If so, this will have been the Jewish version in use in the Near East. And we have fragments of the Book of Watchers and the Astronomical Book in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we even have direct evidence of at least one group of Jews in the Hellenistic period who were reading at least some parts of one Enoch, but we have no evidence for one Enoch as a book, as a collected corpus in Aramaic. The process of assembly cannot have taken place before the first century CE. In other words, there was a long history of Enochic writings in circulation, probably in at least Aramaic and Greek, before the one Enoch compilation took place sometime in the Roman period. Okay, Long-time listeners know that we here at the Schwepp can't resist a little textual intrigue, but we will call that due diligence and turn now to what's in the text. Thank you for your patience. One Enoch has five main parts, generally known as the Book of Watchers, the Parables of Enoch, or the Similitudes of Enoch, the Astronomical Book, the Book of Dream Visions, and the Epistle of Enoch. In this episode, we're going to confine ourselves to the Book of Watchers, as it's amazing enough to demand an episode all its own, and we'll explore the other sections next time. Now, the opening line of one Enoch ascribes the book to Enoch. The apocalyptic genre was a new thing in Second Temple Judaism, as we've seen, but it almost always presented itself as being an old thing. That is to say, if someone named Steve had a vision he would not generally publish it as the Apocalypse of Steve. He would put another name on it, a canonical name from the figures mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. We have from antiquity apocalypses of Adam, Abraham, Moses, you name it. Now, the Apocalypse of John in the New Testament, aka the Book of Revelation, 
is actually the exception to this rule. And in the Middle Ages, we get things like the Byzantine Apocalypse of Mary. That's Mary, Jesus' mother. But in antiquity, these works were almost always pseudepigraphic, meaning that they were attributed to someone else, someone very ancient, and someone very authoritative in a Jewish context. Now, one Enoch starts with a peroration with end-of-the-world type themes. And we're going to be quoting in this episode from the translation of Ethiopic Enoch by Charles, which is somewhat out of date, but has a nice King Jamesy feel to the prose. The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous, who will be living in the day of tribulation, when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man, whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me, and from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation, but for a remote one which is to come. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame, and the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish, and there shall be a judgment upon all men. But with the righteous he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them. So here we have, right at the beginning, the time of tribulation. Now we should remember that this is new stuff in Judaism. The idea that the world is going to end in a spectacular fashion, with the righteous being rewarded and the unrighteous being punished, enters Western consciousness through precisely the apocalyptic tradition we're looking at. And this is the wellspring of that tradition. So, cue Christianity and Islam. The world's days are numbered, and the wicked are going to get theirs. There follows a section describing the order of nature, seen as signs of God's work of creation. Again, cue the Qur'an in Islam here, because the Qur'an is full of this sort of stuff. Followed by the story of the Watchers, starting in chapter 6. Now we're getting into the territory we were in earlier when we quoted from the book of Genesis. Chapter 6. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Semjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all two hundred. And these are the names of their leaders, Semlazaz, their leader, Araklba, Ramael, Kokablel, Tamlel, Ramlel, Danel, etc., etc. You get the idea. There's a lot more angelic names to follow, but we'll leave them out. There are tons of these fallen angels, and they all have names which is another pretty new thing we see here. The rich tradition of the angelic hierarchy is really being born in the Second Temple period, and this work is a major source for that tradition. 
And since these are fallen angels, we are also looking here at a first major source for the tradition of demonic hierarchies or hierarchies of evil powers, which also has a huge esoteric afterlife. We get loads of alternative names and different rankings and so forth for all these different angels in different Enochic texts. But this will serve as an example of the sort of thing you tend to find in these works. We shall see when we look at Jewish magic from the antique period that these angelic names become big business. Magical texts from antiquity are full of the names of different angels, and this is a tradition which will go on all the way to modern times, in fact. We shall also see traditional pagan gods in magical spells from the period, sometimes side by side with Hebrew or pseudo-Hebrew angelic names. So hold on to your hats because it gets very interesting. It seems like the Enochic tradition really opens the door for hierarchies of spiritual beings which can be used for good or ill purposes by magicians. The different fallen angels go on to have kids with their human wives, and they teach them sciences and arts. The women become pregnant and bear destructive giants who proceed to eat the humans and generally destroy everything. This section is interesting because the accounts of different arts being taught to humankind are intercut with descriptions of how this was all a terrible thing. So the sciences and arts of civilization, and also what we might call occult sciences like astrology, are being depicted here as uh, a bit of a disaster. So check this out from chapter 8. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates, and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them, and bracelets and ornaments, and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids, and all kinds of costly stones, and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. So you see the um, juxtaposition between learning arts of civilization and becoming corrupt and evil. Semjaza taught enchantments and root cuttings. Armaros, the resolving of enchantments. Barakijal taught astrology. Kokabel, the constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds, Arakiel, the signs of the earth, Shamsiel, the signs of the sun, and Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. So, this alternation between arts and sciences, and the horrors humankind is undergoing at the hands of the giants and or fallen angels, goes on for some time. Then, we switch to the good angels who are watching all this slaughter and acquisition of hidden knowledge, and they go to God and tell him what's going on. Although they also say that God knows everything, so he doesn't really need telling, but it's part of the logic of the narrative that they have to tell him anyway. And God says, yes, you're right, and sends the flood. So going back to the Genesis account, we have here the backstory to those short sentences we cited earlier in this episode. We now know why God had to send the flood. The earth was being trashed by evil giants, and the humans are being corrupted and or eaten. But they weren't all eaten, obviously, because Noah is still around. But anyway, we also get an answer to, to why the dinosaurs had to go in the Book of Enoch. Because once the humans have been corrupted, the giants turn to the rest of the creation and corrupt the animals too. So we have a basic narrative here of the fall. 
of a disruption of the divine order that was instituted by God. And we're 300 years or so before Christianity. This passage from Enoch is a very, very seminal text for the Western tradition. It's depicting that something is dreadfully wrong, that God's plan went awry. And although God is going to fix it with the flood, there's a sort of lingering bad taste left in the mouth of the reader that things are never quite as good as they were. Something is dreadfully wrong, the text is telling us. And this is an idea that we do not find in Hellenic texts of the classical period, nor in Greco-Roman writings more generally. We find it entering the Western tradition here, in one Enoch, and through the apocalyptic tradition more generally. Now this is an idea that is going to return again and again and again in the Western esoteric traditions. If something's wrong, it's perhaps possible for human beings, or at least those privy to esoteric knowledge, to do something about it and make it right again. Cue early modern alchemy, among other things. We then get Enoch himself entering the story. So God tells the good angels, Uriel, Raphael, Michael, uh, very important figures, to go cleanse the earth and prepare the flood, after which humans will be righteous and blessed. But they go and tell all this to Enoch instead, which is presumably not against God's wishes, but it's not exactly what God told them to do. So now we're quoting from chapter 12. Before these things, Enoch was hidden, and no one of the children of men knew where he was hidden, and where he abode, and what had become of him. And his activities had to do with the watchers, and his days were with the holy ones. And now we're going to switch to the first person. And I, Enoch, was blessing the Lord of majesty and the king of the ages, and lo, the watchers called me, Enoch the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go, declare to the watchers of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of earth do, and have taken unto themselves wives. You have wrought great destruction on the earth, and ye shall have no peace nor forgiveness of sin, and inasmuch as they delight themselves in their children, the murder of their beloved ones shall they see. And over the destruction of their children shall they lament, and shall make supplication unto eternity. But mercy and peace shall ye not attain. So this is what Enoch is supposed to go and tell the watchers. So he does this, and the watchers ask Enoch to petition God for them, for forgiveness. So Enoch writes down their petition, and goes off and reads it to himself. But instead of delivering it to God, he falls asleep and has a vision of their punishment in a dream. Now, this dream vision is the first real apocalypse in one Enoch, a visionary narrative delivered in a dream. This is worth reading in extenso. It's great stuff, and the stuff of which traditions are made. A visionary journey into the heavens with all kinds of great scenery along the way, and it also has a vision within a vision. One of the fascinating things about accounts of journeys to the other worlds seems to be this kind of vision within a vision motif. We've seen this already in the podcast in episode 31, in the myth of Ur in Plato's Republic, book 10, where, as you'll recall, Ur is traveling around in the underworld, seeing the fate of various souls and where they go and how they reincarnate and so on and so forth. And then suddenly, he's looking down on the cosmos, and he sort of gets a lesson in astronomy from some kind of vantage point outside the cosmos or above it. So... 
sudden shifts of scene seem to be a common characteristic of this sort of narration. And it reminds me of those dreams you have where you're sort of like in a train and then you go down the stairs and there's a basement to the train and then you step through a door and you're outside in a field, this sort of thing. And I've no doubt that dreams did definitely play some role in the formation of the apocalyptic tradition. And that is a theme to which we shall definitely be returning in the course of the podcast. But here, let's get back to our text. Chapter 14 is the substance of Enoch's first vision. And the vision was shown to me thus. Behold, in the vision clouds invited me, and a mist summoned me, and the course of the stars and the lightnings sped and hastened me, and the winds in the vision caused me to fly and lifted me upward and bore me into heaven. And I went in till I drew nigh to a wall which is built of crystals and surrounded by tongues of fire, and it began to affright me, and I went into the tongues of fire and drew nigh to a large house which was built of crystals. And the walls of the house were like a tessellated floor made of crystals, and its groundwork was of crystal. Its ceiling was like the path of the stars and the lightnings, and between them were fiery cherubim, and their heaven was clear as water. A flaming fire surrounded the walls, and its portals blazed with fire. So we're looking at a crystal palace surrounded by fire there's fire everywhere and the ceiling is sort of water but it's also the heavens let's get back to the text here and i entered into that house and it was hot as fire and cold as ice there were no delights of life therein fear covered me and trembling got hold upon me and as i quaked and trembled i fell upon my face and i beheld a vision and lo, there was a second house, greater than the former, and the entire portal stood open before me, and it was built of flames of fire. And in every respect, it so it excelled in splendor and magnificent and extent, that I cannot describe to you its splendor and its extent. And its floor was of fire, and above it were lightnings, and the path of the stars, and its ceiling also was flaming fire." And I looked and saw therein a lofty throne. Its appearance was as crystal, and the wheels thereof as the shining sun. And there was the vision of cherubim. And from underneath the throne came streams of flaming fire, so that I could not look thereon. And the great glory sat thereon. And his raiment shone more brightly than the sun, and was whiter than any snow. None of the angels could enter and could behold his face by reason of the magnificence and glory, and no flesh could behold him. The flaming fire was round about him, and a great fire stood before him, and none around could draw nigh to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, yet he needed no counselor. And the most holy ones who were nigh unto him did not leave by night nor depart from him. And until then I had been prostrate on my face, trembling. And the Lord called me with his own mouth and said to me, Come hither, Enoch, and hear my word. And one of the holy ones came to me and waked me, and he made me rise up and approach the door, and I bowed my face downwards. So, Enoch is asleep, he's dreaming, then he falls down in this fiery palace, and seemingly falls asleep and has a dream of another fiery palace, wherein he sees God on a wheeled throne, surrounded by 
countless multitudes of angels, more fire, more flashings of lightning, more crystal everything. And God says, come here, I'm going to tell you something. Now, Enoch sees God, but he doesn't see God because no one can look on God and live. This is a final theme that I'd like to emphasize here, and we find it again and again in Apocalyptic. And when we turn to Philo of Alexandria later on and to the Gnostic apocalypses, we shall see this theme again, but amazingly transformed. The encounter with God is always somehow not an encounter with God. There's always a distance between the human and the God of the vision. God then tells Enoch to go and deliver a message of woe to the watchers. And in chapter 17, Enoch is again relocated and taken to some other vantage point. So again, he doesn't go and deliver the message. He has more visions. And they took and brought me to a place in which those who were there were like flaming fire. And when they wished, they appeared as men. And they brought me to the place of darkness and to a mountain, the point of whose summit reached to heaven. And on this mountain, Enoch is going to see basically the whole universe and all its secrets laid out before him. And then he's taken again and again to different places. The imagery is absolutely brilliant, and I highly recommend our listeners to check this stuff out, but we don't have time to go into it all here. That's why we've just given a a choice selection to give you the flavor of the text. We note here an important theme. Enoch is being shown all of this by a company of angels, among whom Uriel is named. So here we have the angelic guide figure. In his first dream vision, he just dreamt he was in this palace. Then he fell down on his face and saw another palace where God was. And God said, go tell the watchers that bad stuff is going to happen to them. But then he's taken on a tour of the universe by angelic guides. Now this guide figure is another important topos of apocalyptic. When you visit the other world, it's best to bring a guide, apparently. Now that's all we have time for for this first part of our two-part series on the Book of Enoch. In the next episode, we'll explore the other books of one Enoch and talk about the extraordinary life of this text in the Western esoteric traditions. But until then, be like the knowledge of metalworking, of astrology, and of magical arts taught by the Watchers to humanity, and stay esoteric to avoid God's needing to destroy the world in another flood.